0: your Bibles, I want to have you turn over to Proverbs chapter 10. We started chapter 10 last week, and as you know, we we basically really laid the groundwork, not only for some great things in your own life, but for uh, what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we learned some great principles for ourselves, and like I said, we're going to build on that today as we move into uh, the next verse here. And I want to draw your attention particularly to verse 5. And uh, we'll, uh, like I said, what we gave you last week, uh, toward the end, we'll build into this today, and you'll see how it kind of all kind of goes together. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our verse here. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We commit this time to you. We give it to you, Lord, to quiet our hearts, to uh, open up our hearts and our mind, to give us everything that we need. We love you very much, and we thank you for all you do for us, and we ask you now your blessings upon this time. And all that we endeavor to do for Thee in Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, Amen. Now, verse five says, "He gathereth in summer." Uh, He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest um, is a son that causes shame. And uh, we now understand a little better uh, the first four verses we talked about last week. uh, The back and forth between the uh, how the proverbs from this point on kind of changes in its delivery. You have a one verse that will have a positive aspect and then a negative separated by a colon. Or sometimes it's negative, then a colon, and a positive. But there's two aspects to these now as we start to come through it. And uh, like I said, we understand a little better uh, from last week that, that what makes a father glad. And a God in a spiritual sense. And that is a son who, as far as a Christian concerned, gets a real job as far as understanding what God saved for him to do. Uh, to, uh, to go to work, to get the job done that God has called him to do. A son that has self-motivation. Uh, we talked about a slack hand or a slackard last week and how that they get nothing done, never finish anything. Uh, and, of course, uh, that's exactly what uh, the the Bible's talking about here. I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. And that's a great concept in the Bible. He not only was the author of it, he was the finisher of it. And yet, to me, most people read that and they just think about the fact that it's kind of like, well, he was the author of it and he finished it, I'm glad. But that's a great precedent for all of us because, you know what? When we become a Christian, we start a work for God. We start something that God has put into our life. And just as he was the author of salvation and the finisher of my faith, we ought to finish what we start for him as a child of God. When we start to endeavor to do something for God, we need to finish it. And most of God's people don't do that. And today, uh, you know, I want to put this whole message into a practical application for you. Uh, We'll talk about some of the things of how it lays out doctrine. You'll get some good information. But overall, I want this to be for you and for me as uh, we look at ourselves as God's child and and, and gathering and doing what God wants us to do. Now, I want to talk today about seasons in your life. And the Bible verse here talks about gathering in summer. Summer is one of the four seasons that we have uh, in our life, in our world, as as the earth goes around the sun and we go through the different times of year. And uh, I want to talk to you today not only about that, but how it lays out in our life and how it relates to us in the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 says, "...to everything there is a season." To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Now, we know from the book of Ecclesiastes when he's talking about under heaven, he's talking about things on the earth. And he's basically saying that to everything there is a season, your life and my life, everything around us, and there's a time appointed for us. The Bible says it's appointed unto men to die, and after this the judgment. There was a time appointed for everything in your life and my life once become a Christian. And in the Bible... (coughs) One of the greatest studies that you'll ever take uh, or undertake, anyhow, is the study of the times and the seasons in the Bible, one of the most important studies in the Word of God. When you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes says there's a time and a season for everything in our life. And then when you get into Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you have 28 aspects that form the cycle of life, 28 things, a time to this, a time for that, a time for that, 28 of them. Most people read that and never go any farther in the book of Ecclesiastes and saying, well, that's really nice. But there's 28 things there because this is the cycle of life. And the moon, which revolves around this earth, which goes around itself and its revolutions, in both cases is 28 days. It's showing you that the cycle of life is based on these 28 things. It's incredible study to get into. We, no way can we even scratch the surface this morning, but we'll make a few mention of things and maybe it'll whet your appetite. Now, as I said, the seasons in the Bible are a tremendous study. We know there's four of them. There's springtime, there's summer, there's fall, <coughs> and then there's winter. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says, and God, made, uh, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Three things that the, the sun and the moon and the lights that God put up there are for. The first one is for signs, the Bible says. We know that'll be for the nation of Israel. You can find those things in the book of Revelation. Also in the book of Joshua. Then it says that it's, for, uh, that it's for seasons. That'll be for the church age. That'll be for your life and my life. And then the Bible says, and for days and for years. That'll be in a general sense of counting time, you know, from a calendar, the months of the year. Paul told the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, he said, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So when you want to learn about the second coming of Christ in the Bible, If you're a Bible student out there and you say, I really want to learn and understand about the second coming of Christ as far as it relates to the church and where I'm at with it and what I should know about it, then you want to study the times and the seasons, and you want to get those down. The times will be found in Matthew chapter 24, if you want to get a little into it. The times will be found in Matthew chapter 24. The seasons will be laid out all the way through the Old Testament, but in particular, Zechariah chapter 14, you'll find it. You'll find that the, the, uh, the, the time of Christ's coming will be, that season will be September of October, Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, you'll find that the time of the rapture in Song of Sodom in chapter 2, that time of the season will be sometime in the springtime of the year, May and June. That's why traditionally you always have a June bride. Everybody wants to get married in May and June. Well, that's. Great and we get all kinds of wedding invitations. But there's a wedding coming sometime in May and June. It's going to be the wedding of all weddings. And that's Amen. when the Lord comes back for you and me. But you've got to get into the season to get that. Now, remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, the Jews came to the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles did. And uh, the Bible says that when they, they were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord... Uh, uh, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. i got to call Zona here. <laughs> She called me this morning. I'll just pretend we just started. <laughs> Zona, I'm here. Are you Zona? You don't sound like Zona. Are you sure you're Zona? Can I see your driver's license? Okay, here we go. I'm sorry I'm a little late. I passed out this morning, but I'm back up on my feet now and ready to go. So hang on. Here we go. Okay. Okay. I don't think she cared one way or the other, Raphael on or not. But anyway, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles came to the Lord Jesus. You remember the story. They said to him, what will be the, are you going to restore right now the kingdom to Israel? That's what they asked him. And you remember that he didn't answer them. He didn't answer them. And, uh, and the reason why he didn't answer them is because I'm going to show you why. Uh, turn over to Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to show you why he didn't answer them. But then I'm going to show you why he didn't answer them in Acts chapter 1. But when he wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to the church, then he told us. He wouldn't give them any information when they asked. But he told you and me, the church, uh, some time later, that we ought to know the times and the seasons and not be ignorant. And I'll show you why that is. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 and 21. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom wisdom and might are his. Now here it comes, verse 21. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding then the Bible says that God changes the times and the seasons. Now, that's what we've got here. You remember a little while back on Thursday night, I brought you through the seven pillars and then the different dispensations in the Bible. We spent a lot of time with Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, did we? And I hopefully explained it to you that you understand what's going on in that intermediate period there. And here's where we know that the nation of Israel gets three chances to get the Lord. The first one was John the Baptist, they killed him. The second one was uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, they killed him. But God gives them one more chance, and that chance is found in Acts chapter 1 through 7 and, and finalizes with the preaching of Stephen. So they haven't made their decision yet final in Acts chapter 1. So when the apostles come to him and say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? He says to them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But when he wrote to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, he tells us that we as the church should know the times and the seasons. You know what happened? The Jews rejected him that third time. They killed Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So you know what God did? He changed the times and the seasons, and he turned that thing around and took it back to the, uh, to the church and started the church and, uh, and postponed the kingdom to Israel for another 2,000 years. He changed the times and the seasons. Now, that's a pretty good piece of, of, of understanding prophecy. That'll answer a lot of questions for you in that time period. And I'll, I'll tell you this, and I'm not going to get into it this morning, but there's a good chance that he changed them again down around the last part of the 1800s, around 1890 with the Zionist movement. That Bible says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, that he removeth kings and he sets up, in kingdoms, and then he sets up kings and kingdoms. Now, you can't separate the Bible from history. You can't separate God from history. When you try to do that, then you just wind up with a secular Gentile history that doesn't have any rhyme or reason to it. You put God in history, and you can begin to see what's going on. Those Jews came to him and said, are you going to tell us when you're coming back? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. He didn't tell them. They made their final rejection. He changed the times and the seasons. And now we're going to the church age. We're not going to give Israel the kingdom now. They're going to get postponed till the church age is over. And so when he wrote it to the church, he said, you and the church should know, should not be ignorant of the times and the seasons. And so we know now that that period moves on and we see the church age develop, but God not finished with the nation of Israel. So sometime along the way here, God enacted what he did and said in, in Daniel chapter 2. He removes kings and kingdoms and sets up kings and kingdoms. Around 1890, you have the beginning of what has been known as a Zionist movement, a movement to bring Israel back into the focus of things. Now, during that time, uh, Europe was completely locked in by what we would call European monarchies, And those are government monarchies, kings that have been handed down through families for hundreds of years, and they had a gridlock on everything in Europe. But the Bible says that He he removeth kings and sets up kings. So World War I came along. When World War I came along, at the end of World War I, all the European dynasties were dissolved. All of them. Russia's dynasty was gone. The Ottoman Turks were gone. German dynasty was gone. And the Austro-Hungarian dynasty was gone. All those empires are gone. There's only one empire left at the end of World War I, and that is England. And guess what England gets control of? Jerusalem. You know what God did? He took down those kings, set up new kings. You know what happened after World War II in 1948? The nation of Israel becomes a nation. See how that thing works? God changes the times and the seasons. God, in his own will, he knows what he wants to do. He gave Israel a chance. Israel rejected that chance, and so God says, you know what, I'm going to change the times and the seasons, and then when he got closer to the end of the 1800s into the 20th century, which is going to move into the 21st century, which is going to usher in the second coming of Christ any time now, he had to get Israel back in the land, so he just does what Daniel chapter 2 says he does. He removes kings, sets up kings. Israel's a nation in 1948. Hitler thought he was going to take the world. Mussolini thought he was going to take the world. Tojo thought he was going to take the world. They all got removed. And at the end of the day, at the end of the story, when Israel becomes a nation, everything is right where God wants it to be. Now, in a practical sense, for you and for me, what we have here in these four seasons are a perfect illustration of your life and my life on planet Earth. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 ought to be a very familiar passage for you. It simply says that the invisible things of him from the creation are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. It simply means that everything that God made will show you and me something about life, about God, about heaven, about hell, about our struggles in life and everything that we go through. It's a tremendous passage, probably one of the key passages in the Bible for seeing the typology in the Bible and how it relates to you. Now, you know this, our our year is divided into four seasons. Each one of them has a certain certain starting time according to the the, the moon going around the the sun. And there's different ways that you, there's satiral time, there's lunar time, there's solar time, there's there's a bunch of different ways to measure this, and they don't all exactly match. But when you come through there and you lay it out and you see it, uh, you find that there's four basic seasons. And each one has a certain starting time of the year that starts the time and the seasons. The first one we understand and know is springtime. And, of course, it's called, uh, in a technical term, the spring equinox. Equinox is a Latin word that means equal. And the spring equinox is a time, it's around uh, um, March 20th. It varies with the calendar sometimes. But it's, it's equinox, equal. It's the time that day and night are equal on the same day uh, in the springtime. And it's called the spring equinox and uh, it's, like I said, the time when day and night are equal. In the Bible, this spring equinox, when you get into the Song of Sodom, it'll give you a lot of information about the rapture of the church. Uh, Pope Gregory, around 400 A.D., he fooled with a calendar. We call it the Julian calendar today. He fooled with a calendar, and what he did is shift some things around so he could bring Easter, Ashtar, the pagan holiday, and officially make it Christmas uh, for, the, uh, for the Roman Catholics, which spread through everybody else. So you have springtime, which is the spring equinox. Then you have summertime, and that's called the summer solstice, solar from the sun. And uh, it's around June 21st. And it's got the solar sol, solstice, or soul in it, the sun, uh, because uh, it's the time that the sun is at the highest angle, and it's the longest day of, of, of our day. And it's the longest day of the year. And the earth at this particular point in time is farthest from the sun that it ever gets. The old idea is, you know, that because it gets winter because the sun is farther away from the earth, so therefore we don't have the heat. And in the summertime, the earth is closer to the sun, so therefore we get more heat, so it's warmer. That's not the way it works. It has nothing to do with how far, how short, or how the distance. It has to do with the angle. And the angle is what makes the difference between summer and winter, which really makes the difference between the seasons as the angle changes. And the summer solace just runs around June 21st. And in the pagan holidays, this is the beginning of their festival and all of their rituals. Uh, The theme of this festival throughout it from the early spring or late spring into this was uh, with with the sexual concept of, of rebirth of everything. Of the earth was dead through winter, now it's regaining its life, and through Baal worship and the pagan holidays, this is their concept of the rebirth. You and I understand that we get born again by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, but they're tree huggers, you see. They believe in everything out there around the world uh, has to do with God, and God is in everything. God is in the bugs, and God is this. God is in the trees. They're the people who go crazy on, you know, the, protecting this tree and protecting the bugs and protecting all the things and spend $50 billion of your tax money so turtles can go underneath a little bridge instead they don't have to go across right. the road and get ran over, all those things, you know. Right. That's where they're at. And those people going back through history were the ones who worshiped the sun. They worshiped the moon. The, ma- the sun was the male deity. The f- moon was the female deity. And the moon chased the sun around the thing. And when it got together for an eclipse, well, there's children in here. I can't tell you what was supposed to happen at that particular point in time. But you get the pay The whole thing was built around the sexual context and it, uh, the infertility. And of course, Easter, Ashtar, was the god of fertility. And so it all kind of goes around from spring into summer, and all the festivals were dealing with a new birth, the earth being rejuvenated, coming back to life, and that was the phony new birth that is, uh, you know, counterfeit of the one in the Bible. Well, then you have fall, and this will be the fall equinox, and this will be September 23rd, around there. It varies from time to time on the calendar. And again, this is the second time, the second day of the year, that uh, day and night are equal, hence the word equinox, equal. And uh, I, I don't know if you, what you know about this, but this is one of the greatest keys in the Bible to a lot of things. Uh, I don't have time to get into it today, but uh, uh, the, the Bible, in the, at, at, in the Bible, uh, this time period, uh, the fall of East knock, will be the time of the original creation in Genesis chapter 1. I don't know if you know it, but your earth, uh, the earth and the sun, or the sun is the center of our solar system, the earth revolves around the sun, but it's not a perfect circle, in fact, when you put the math to it and lay it all out, it's four days off. And the reason it's four days off, scientists never figured this out. But they can figure it back, and they figured it back, in the four days that it's off is September 20th, 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. Uh, that's the four days that it's off. They can figure the math, but they don't ever put the Bible to it. They don't understand that, uh, that September 20th, it was the beginning of the creation of everything in Genesis chapter 1. The Jews knew it. The Jews had it down in the chronology in a great way. Our, uh, Usher in his chronology runs it right back to the same time period. Everybody knew it but them. But what happened is, is God, makes the, God makes the earth first, and then four days later he makes the sun. So the earth is here and moving through space, and the sun gets put on the fourth day. So it's four days off. And those four days are September 20th, 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. And when you put it to the Bible, that'll be the date of the original creation. That'll be the birthday of Jesus Christ. And that's also the times of the Feast of Tabernacles, which will be the time of the second coming of Christ. It's a very important key in the Bible. To Exodus chapter 12, when God brought them out of Egypt, the Jews always took the Feast of Tabernacles to begin their year. You know why they did that? Because they took it from that beginning because they knew that was the beginning of all time. They understood it. They got it. They figured it out. Well, then you have winter. They have winter. And this will be the winter solstice, sun again. This is around December 21st. And this will be where the sun is in its lowest angle. and It doesn't get very high. This is the shortest day of the year. And uh, again, like I said, it has to do with the sun, solstice, solar. In history, in, in pagan history, you'll find that, uh, it, as I said, it deals with the sun, And they knew that the sun was the closest to the earth at this particular point in time. The sun was the sun god, (coughs) Baal. So they felt that because the Baal was closer to the earth, that it was a great time of celebration, and it must be Baal's birthday. And this time period runs December 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th, ends on the 25th. We know it as Christ's birthday. That's because Constantine in 325 brought the pagan holidays in and brought Christmas uh, in with it, and uh, then uh, pro Gregory made it official and brought it in, and so it became Jesus Christ's birthday. In history, the Bible was never Jesus Christ's birthday. In pagan theology, it was the sun God's birthday. Jesus was born in September. Uh, I gave you the time as we've talked about it before. And you go back to Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, you'll actually find Christmas being displayed in Baal worship. Christmas tree, presents, the whole nine yards. Uh, Deck the halls with balls of folly, la, 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 la. It's all right there Jeremiah chapter 10. And they bring that in when it comes in. So those four seasons uh, represent something to the earth for us that we need to know about in that sense. Most of you have heard about the Farmer's Almanac. And uh, Farmer's Almanac uh, was very popular, not very popular today with most of your crowd, but uh, the old crowd knows about the Farmer's Almanac. It was very accurate and it was basically based and originally on the four seasons and the equinoxes and the solstices and the Bible and all that stuff. And it was very accurate in predicting weather and how it was going to go. But like I said, we got iPod now, so we don't mess with that anymore. Now, you've heard me say it many times. We're going to move into the practical side here now. Now we're going to go to work. You've heard me say many times that God has a job that he wants you to do. If you're saved here this morning, male or female, don't matter how old you are. If you're saved here this morning, God has a plan for you. He has something that He wants you to accomplish with your life, a mission for you to fulfill. And uh, our life uh, in the Bible is broken down uh, just like uh, in history. Your life, my life, is broken down in the Bible in the four seasons. But I want to talk about that this morning. Philippians chapter 1, is verse 6 says, The day you got saved, God begun a good work in you and wants to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. John chapter six verse twenty eight says that we ought to be doing the work of God. Psalms chapter, but you got a season that has to be in there. You see, you have to recognize these four seasons. Psalms chapter one verses one and through four, my favorite passage in the Bible says, "Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth." His fruit in his season. You have a season to your fruit bearing. Now, you don't have to be much of a rocket scientist to figure out that you can't go out in February and get apples off an apple tree. You can't, well, I mean, you can't go out in the middle of winter and you don't, you don't uh, plow your fields and sow your seed and don't go out to harvest in, in January and February. And it's a great thing that, you know, that God puts everything in your life uh, to, to get you to this season. And what he wants you to do is to understand. That's why he made these things. Romans chapter 1 verse 19. He wants you to see the seasons and how the earth goes through a springtime. And it goes through a, a, a summertime. And then it gets into a falltime. And then everything dies in the wintertime. And every year we go through and see an example of exactly where our life is going. Because there will be a springtime in your life. There will be a summertime in your life. And there will be a falltime in your life. There'll be a winter time in your life, and our text today says the son needs to gather in the summertime. He needs to gather in the summertime. A wise son will gather in the summer of his life. A fool won't, and uh, these are some credible things as we come down through here. Now, last week, we saw a son who brought shame to his father. That father is God doctrinally. We talked about that by being a slacker of a slack hand and, and sleeping while he should be working the work of his father. Last week, we looked at a great word called the word diligence. And I told you how important that word was. John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus says, I must work the works of him that sent me. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 15, I must be about my father's business. If there's anything, the quality that Jesus had, it was the fact that he was diligent about the mission that God had given him. When we really truly get saved, and I'm not suggesting that you're not, but when we really truly get saved and we really understand what God has called for us to do, we understand that there's an urgency in what our mission is. The urgency lies in the fact that we only have a short season to get it done. And I understand, you know, most of our church is young guys and young gals. You're in your 20s and your 30s, in your late teens or your early teens or your mid-teens, and uh, you got your whole life ahead of you as you think. But you'll be quickly how fast that thing passes. We saw a son, as I said, who brought shame to his father. And a wise son will gather in the summer. And you remember when we started the book of Proverbs, I gave you the nine aspects found in Proverbs that define a wise man. And I gave them to you. A wise man will hear and increase in learning in chapter 1, verse 5. A wise man inherits glory in chapter 3, verse 35. A wise man received commandments in 10.8. A wise man wins souls, chapter 11, verse 30. Hearkens to counsel in 12.15. A wise man fears and departs from evil, 14.16. A wise man dispenses knowledge, 15.7. A wise man seeks knowledge, 18.15. And a wise man guards his tongue, 29.16. These are the qualities of a wise son, one that brings honor to his father, And makes him glad. Now, fundamentally, our job as Christians may have many aspects to it. When I talk about God having a plan for you and a plan for me, He certainly does. And in many ways, your plan won't be my plan. My plan is doing what I do in a fundamental way. God has a plan for you, many of you. Your plan is to hook up with me and help me do what God's called me to do as a co laborer. I get that. But really, fundamentally, and all we do in our jobs as a child of God uh, to keep uh, things doing what God wants us to do, the fundamental function of every one of us, and I talked about this last week, the fundamental function for every one of us, no matter what else we do, bottom line in your life and my life is simply to reproduce ourselves and keep Christianity moving forward. Reproducing in others what God has given to you and me. You know, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, when God made the trees and the herbs, the Bible says when he created them, he made them so that the seeds were in them themselves. You plant an apple tree, if you wait long enough, you'll have five or six apple trees. If You plant an orange tree or a pear tree, you wait long enough, you'll have all kinds of pear trees. The seed is within its own fruit, and it reproduces itself naturally. And that is the same model for what God did because when you got saved, God gave you the precious seed of the Word of God inside you. You have the seed of God's Word inside you this morning if you're saved, and that seed should naturally reproduce itself in other people. And we saw a son who brought shame to his father because uh, he didn't do that. And when we get saved, we have the good seed, the Word of God in us, that we should naturally reproduce what God has given us in others. Now, I want to walk you through these four seasons of our life today. I want to talk about them in a practical way. I want to show you how these things will match up to your life cycle, and uh, we're all going to go through it. It just won't all go through it wisely. This is one of the most incredible, eye-opening studies in the Bible that a child of God will ever take as far as understanding their own life. Now, first of all, I want to talk to you about the springtime in your life. Now, The best scenario for salvation. I'm going to give you the best scenario here for salvation. The best scenario for a person's salvation is, one, be born at an early age. Of course, you know that has to happen. You're a baby. You get born, and then you grow up in the nurturing of the Lord with godly parents, two to eight. You get saved when you're around 9, 10, or 11. You get consecrated to the Lord when you're about 12 to 15. And then you give him the rest of your life to do what he's called you to do. Now, that is the best scenario for a person to get saved in. Now, I know that most of you did not come that way. I didn't come that way. But by now, you've been saved any length of time, you know that that is obviously the best way to do it. And even though I didn't, my children did, and their grandchildren did, because fundamentally, that is the best absolute way to do it. And they're better off for doing it that way. And they're better off because sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him. Right. And your, your best option is to get saved while you're yet tender, <coughs> Come to the point where you get through that process, everything that you need. And, you know, it'll be a thing where this is what the best way to go. And I said, most of us did not come through that, but thank God for the grace of God that God got us saved anyhow. But if it can't for you, it can with your family and it should stop with you or start with you. You should now take the position and make sure that your children, their children, in the next 20 generations of your family do it right to give these kids every chance they can. You as a parent have the ability to make the difference. You really do. I was reading in the book of Ruth this week, and I thought to myself as I was reading through that, there's Ruth who, when you study that book, you know, she was the great-great-grandfather of David, King David. Uh, when When you study that book, you see that she had all kinds of choices in life. She was a Moabite. She, was, she wasn't even connected in the line of Christ. She was a Moabite, and she, was, and, and, and she had all kinds of choices that she could have stayed in, in Moab or she could have went. And In her life, you see something inside her, and she makes all the right choices. And yet, when it comes down to the end of the book, she marries Boaz, and Boaz has Jesse and Obed and down the line, and from them comes David. And I thought to myself as I read that, boy, there's a great example how one person doing right can bring about the greatest king that Israel ever had. One woman who decided she was going to put an end to Moab and all of the false gods when her sister went back when her sister wanted to go back to Moab and go back to that, she said, I'm not doing that. She looked at Naomi. and She said, I'm going with you. Your God's going to become my God. Your people are going to become my people. And she left Moab with everything behind and went with her. And then she found Boaz in the field. Remember the day you found Boaz in the field, the world? Remember today you were working out there, gleaning in that, in that field out there, and he came up and he looked at you and he saw something in you and me. And he, he said, he took you under his protection. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. One woman who decided she wasn't going to go back to the world could make all the difference in the world and give Israel the greatest king they ever had. And I'm telling you, one mother, one father, one mom and dad who decides they're not going back to Moab can make all the difference in the world in generations to come. Incredible thing. Incredible thing. There has to come a time in your life where you say, I'm done with it. There has to come a time in your life when you simply say, you know what? I'm going to give God everything that's left in my life And he's going to have it from this point on. I may have screwed up down here. I may have not did it right here. But from this point on, I'm in the right church. I got the right Bible. I got the right people around me. There is no reason why my next 20 generations, it stops with me. Never again will it go back to the world because I'm going to train my children, not only train my children, I'm going to train my children to train their children, to train their children, to train their children. Down it goes. That's all it works. You as a parent can make and will make the difference one way or the other. You'll either turn out a fool or you'll turn out a wise man. Why do you think, why do you think I push so hard for your children? I understand that I'm not just building a church here. If that's all my scope is, and that's where most pastors, that's where their scope is. It's right now what I'm trying to build here that everybody can look at it and say, wow, look what he did, look at it, dad. You know what? I know I got to build a church. That's what God's called me to do. But that's a very small part of my vision. I know that not only do I got to build a church, but brother, I have bet about building the next generations of this church. Amen. That's where it's at. Why do you think I push so hard for your children? Give them the best we have. When we go to camp, I tell Joe, I tell Zach, I don't care what it costs. Do whatever you got to do to make it the best it is. I, I, I wanna, if, we don't, if we don't give them the best shot we can, and I understand that all I can do and all this church can do will fail if the parents aren't the fundamental ones who make it work. I understand that. Amen. I'm not the one who's going to be able to raise your kids. I'm only the one through this system that can support you in doing what you're doing. You come that next week, you watch these kids we got. You watch two of those kids get up there and, and give their testimony and then one of them preach the word of God next Sunday afternoon. Uh, you're going to go through the whole program. You watch them get up there and, and, and see the quality, how these kids do these things. You, right now, we've got to teach them not only responsibility, we've got to teach them how to preach, how to teach. Give them the ability to interact with people. Stand in front of a crowd and and, and lay out the word of God. Talk about their testimonies. uh, uh, Preach a sermon to them. That's what it's all about. We're not just about building people here on Sunday. Yeah, we are. But the bottom line is it goes beyond that. It's the next generation. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, he wrote three of the five wisdom books. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, he knew it. He knew exactly what I'm talking about. He said, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. I want you to know that this is a church with your family, we're here to equip not only you, but equip your children. But I want you to definitely understand this also. We may be here and do everything we can, as much as we can to equip them, but the world out there, the devil wants to unequip them. There's places in this country right now, in Texas, where they're talking about the fact that they don't want your kids going to school. They don't want to recognize boys and girls anymore. Yeah. Now, what's with that? For five, 6,000 years of human history, there have been girls and boys. Suddenly now, in this perverse, godless generation that wants to make everybody the same, we want to take your kids and tell them they're not boys, they're not girls, they're not male, they're not female. They want to set them up for this transgender garbage or whatever this world wants to be, an amalgamated mess that your kids are okay with it. And most of God's people's parents don't even understand what's going on. It's going to get a lot bad. This church stands along with your parents. In equipping your children. In equipping you. But I'm telling you, we have the job to equip you. We have the means to equip you. But the devil's out there to unequip you. Amen. Amen. And the pressure's coming on. That same place. Texas must be something wrong with Texas. Right. Last week I heard that there's a town in Texas that they're trying to make, the city fathers they are trying to make every preacher in that city Turn his sermon notes in before he preaches on Sunday so they can approve what he says. Exactly. Now I'm telling you, where in the world did we ever hear that? Where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Now I guarantee you that, that that will that will be a firestorm. <laughs> that ever happens in Kansas City, I will I will send my I will say, you know what, here's my sermon. I'm doing I'm doing hand signals this Sunday, and here's the one for you. <laughs> Nobody on this planet has a right to tell any preacher what he can preach. Amen. And brother, when you're in a country that does do that, you better do something with the country. Come on, brother. Amen. I'm telling you, it's a mess out there. And your kids are right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. Because the devil knows greater than I could ever lay it out today. The devil understands That the future of this church, the future of your family, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, all the way down the line depends on you equipping them and reproducing yourself in your children first. The Royals are doing good, aren't they? (laughs) No, no, I told you Thursday night I was going to tell you why the Royals won that last game with the World Series. I put my sermons together on Monday and Tuesday. I get up early Monday morning, work through it, get an idea of what I want to do, and then I come back and I put it all down and get it all worked out. I'm, I'm usually good to go by, by by Wednesday, and then I just fine-tune it throughout the week. You know, if I see something here or hear something, I'll put it in there, you know, to make it work. and I, and, I was, and, I, and I was thinking of this. And I was watching the Royals. You know, I, I don't watch the game because I'm bad luck. If I watch, they'll lose. So I just kind of flip back and forth and, and check it out. And, and, but, uh, but I, I told them I, as I was coming up there, I, I, I thought, this is a great illustration. Because I know where I'm at right now, what we're talking about right now. And I said, you know what? I got in my notes here. The, the Royals are an incredible ball team this year, and, and obviously, I, I mean, a real inspiration to everybody. They're the underdogs. They've always been for 29 years. They're not called America's favorite team for... Everybody likes the underdog. Everybody likes to see them come from nothing and make it to this point, and then in their own minds thinking, maybe there's hope for me. Yeah. I, I get that. That's a good thing. <laughs> and I, But I had the illustration. I said, Lord... If I, if I, if I, this illustration is a great illustration, but if they don't go to the World Series, I can't use this illustration. <laughs> oh, no, you're laughing. I'm absolutely telling you the truth. I sat there scratching my head. And I'm saying, this is a great illustration, but Lord, I won't be able to use it. If they don't go to the World Series, I don't care if they win or not. I just need to get there to use this illustration. <laughs> and if they don't get there, then I'm, you know, I don't, uh, this, thing will, uh, this thing will be wasted and it's a great illustration. The Lord said, I'll handle that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Now, they're a great team and they're doing good and next week we go to the World Series. But I want to tell you something. If they would happen to win the World Series, I want you to know something. They didn't win the World Series in October, they won the World Series in spring training. They, won, they didn't win it in October. It looks like they did, but it was in spring training when they fine-tuned the fundamentals and worked hard and got the, got the mindset that no matter what happens, we're going to make this our year. So they didn't win it in October. If they win it, they won it in spring season. And my illustration is simply this. Your kid won't stand in the October of his life without you building in the spring season of his life some fundamental things. See how that works? Couldn't have used that if they wouldn't have won. (laughs) Your child will only stand in the latter years of of their life. It will be based on what you and I, but you do in the springtime of their life. Their spring training, fine-tuning the fundamental. Oh, I... I came this morning, and I got to tell you, I I had Bob. I told him, I said, I want you to get the groups together and work with these, uh, uh, the young kids in the high school class particularly, but it'll be great for everybody else and show them. Boy, I walked in today, show them how to put a lesson together, a message together, a devotion together, you know, because a lot of people in your prayer groups, adults, they want to do it, but they don't know how to do it. So you give them a little help, and yet we got all the kids. And I walked in there and sat back there, and he had this group over here today. I watched those young kids. I watched those little young kids in that group boy, they were taking their notes and they were listening and they were doing all those things. Listen, Mom and Dad, you got something right now in the springtime of their life that you can do something with if you're willing to, if you understand. Well, then there's a the summertime of life. Now you're in your late teens, your early 20s, and actually this season can last 30 years or so, up to your are 50, 60 years old. And now you're ready or you should be for the work that God saved you for. It's going to be an ongoing process, but you're coming into the prime time of your life, your season of fruit bearing. Now you come into the most productive time of your life from all the Bible standpoint, your fruit bearing season. And I'll tell you this, the devil knows that better than any of us understand it today. So now you'll sow the seed. Now you'll plant the word of God in people's lives. Now you'll water over people with your tears. And now you'll see that the fields are truly white under harvest. By now, you're coming through this process because you had good parents, you had good things at church, and everybody was there to help you. And now you're in your 20s or you're moving into your 30s. Now you have developed knowledge and wisdom and understanding. You come up through it, and because you had good, solid parents and you had good, solid Bible teaching... You, you, as Paul said, flee youthful lusts. You're at the strongest and best physical shape, spiritually, or you should be at this particular time that you'll ever be in, and you give it all you got. You develop yourself. You develop your skills. You let God put people in your life that'll make you better and train you. You stay away from the negative people in life. You stay from the ones that want to take away the equipment that God has given you. You you allow people to hold you accountable. You give you're given responsibility, basic responsibility at first, and you learn from your mistakes. Now is when you take on the greatest task in this time period of summer. Now is when you take on the greatest task ever given a man or a woman, that is a family. Your own church. Your own church to train and to replace yourself with and to make sure that they keep your legacy alive with God down through the coming generations. Now also God will give you your own Titus. Philemon and Timothy's, like he did Paul, like he has me. Men and women outside your family that you begin to work and build to replace yourself with. I'm going to tell you, the whole concept of that summer and the whole concept of your Christian life and its final analysis is for you to replace yourself. Replace yourself. I said last week, there's people that are saved for 30, 40 years and they look back in their life and there's not one person they took the time to invest anything in to replace themselves, and they just die and go off scene, and nobody after 20, 30 years, nobody even knows who they were anymore. It's sad, but it's true. In most young people's lives, and in generally speaking, summertime is a time of fun, vacation, doing nothing, off from school. Not so for the wise child of God. This is his greatest moment. This is this time where he brings everything to focus in his life. This is time, as the old song says, he's sowing in the morning sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontime and the dewy eve, sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither cloud nor winter's chilling breeze, knowing that we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. See, it's the time that you do the work. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 12, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man... I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am, I, I am known. Growing up into a mature Christian. Now I understand doctrinally what that verse is talking about, but in a practical way, I'll tell you exactly what it's talking about. It's talking about you getting to the point in your life as a Christian to the point of no return. You're never going back to the world again. From this point on, it's going to be forward. From this point on, it's going to be everything for your family. You're going to put everything in a biblical context. You're going to, you're going to understand and realize that this isn't about, it, just like it isn't about me raised, building a church, it isn't about you raising a family. At the bottom line is about the legacy of reproducing what you are in your children as I need to reproduce the Word of God into people's lives. It's looking at the next generation down the line. It's not being so tunnel vision that all you see is what you got. But I understand So many of God's people have got themselves so messed up and so screwed up with all the problems in life, all the issues in life. They've made so many bad choices. They won't turn around from it. And they'll never get to the point where their kids can get anywhere simply because their life is so cluttered with all of the garbage and all of the damage and all the collateral damage that has taken place in their life. They can't ever get there. Devil has undone whatever God has tried to do in our lives. Growing up into a mature Christian, Verse 12 says, it says, for now we see through a glass darkly. See, that's when you're a young Christian. You look into the book. Bible's called a a mirror. The Bible's called a, a perfect law of liberty that a man looks into and sees what manner of man he is in the book of James. And the Bible says here, we look into a glass darkly. That's where you're at when you're a young Christian. Some of you young men right now that I spend time with and some of you young ladies that are coming and are uh, spending time with me are on Thursday night when you come to Bible study and the questions you ask are great questions. But it's obviously that in a lot of areas, you're young, you're still looking through that glass darkly. And that comes in a process of time. I looked, used to look through it. I used to hear Mel get up and lay out the Bible and hear guys preach about the Bible and I'd go home scratching my head saying, I looked at the same passage and I never saw any of that. You know why? I was looking through a glass darkly. But then, face to face. It's like you go in and looking into a mirror. And when you look into a mirror, you see exactly who you are. And when you look into the mirror of the Word of God, as you grow and get maturity, the greatest thing you get from that when you look into the mirror of the Word of God is you get to see exactly who you are. Exactly who you are. You get to see exactly who you are in Christ. You get to see exactly who you are in the world, with your struggles. You have, that's why the Bible says that a lot of people, when they, when they get into that thing, and that's why, honestly, that's why a lot of people won't go to a real Bible-believing church for very long. Mm-hmm. Nobody grabs them and forces them, but the Holy Spirit of God is twisting their head to look into that mirror, and they don't like what they see. Like the old thing, mirror, mirror on the wall, you know? Oh, man, you're the ugliest of them all, as I said back, you know. We don't like that. (sighs) We like the fellowship. We like running around. We like having friends. But when it comes down to the the pinnacle of what a church is, opening up that book and and looking into the Word of God. And you look into the Word of God for one reason. It isn't to look at the person next to you. It's to look at yourself. And some people don't want to do that. But if you can do that, You'll grow to the place where you'll come where right now you may look through the glass darkly, but there'll come a time face to face when you look into that book and you see exactly who you are in Christ and you see exactly who you are in reality. Listen, my job, the job of this church is to get you to that point. You may have got saved late in life. The best scenario will not maybe be your scenario God pulled you and me and many of you out of the sewer at 30, 40 years old. Thank God for it. But I'll tell you what I'll do. We can't go back and undo what we did. We can't go back and fix the stupid things we did. But I'll show you what we can do. I'll take you and I'll show you in Ephesians five sixteen how that when you get to that point, you can redeem the time. One of the greatest studies over there in Matthew chapter 20 is about the 12-hour day. And the 12-hour day... It goes down there and it it actually breaks down the church age at almost 200 year increments and shows you the workers going in through different periods of church history. And the last workers go in around 1860, 1870, as far as God's looking at it on his timetable. And they come down through there, and when it was done, you know, they get to the Lord, and the Lord starts putting out rewards, and he gives the guy at the end the same amount as he gave the guy at the beginning. And the guy at the beginning says, What's that all about? We really suffered. This guy didn't do anything. How come you're giving it the same? And the great moral out of that story is simply this, and it's something I never forgot. It ain't about what time you went to work. It's about when you went to work, was you on the job? That's the question. It ain't about where you go to work. Was you on the job at the moment God saved you? I preached one time years ago, and we had a great revival down in Alabama someplace. I think it was Huntsville. And I was preaching down there, laying the thing out and going to town. And about the end of the night, you know, the Lord just come down and busted the church up bad. I mean, everybody was getting right with God, getting saved. It was a great time. I had a elderly gentleman. He was probably in his 70s. Came up, tears streaming down his face. Put his arms around me and he said, you know what? This has been the greatest week of my life. And I said, well, I've really enjoyed it too. And he says, Bobby says, I got to tell you. He says, I wished somebody would have told me 40 years ago in my life what you told me this week. And I said, well, sir, I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that you wish you would have heard this 40 years ago in your life. But let me ask you a question. What are you going to do with it now that you have heard it? It's never too late to start. It's not about when did you go to work. It's not about when you figured it out. It's about when you did figure it out. Were you on the job? That's the question. Amen. Amen. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. Were you on the job? And, of course, that's a great, great, great concept. Well, now we move into the fall of our lives. And uh, this will be 60 or 70 years of old age. Now, at the, this season, you'll begin to slow down in some things. Especially in your, if you went hard during the summer season for that 30 and 40 years. It has a tendency to wear you out. It'll take it out of you. I mean, it's just simply physically you can't do the things at this same level that you once did. Now, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29 is your principle here, and it covers all of this, and it's a great verse. It says, the glory of young men is their strength, but the beauty of an old man is the gray head. You see, a young man still may have the strength to do it all, but he doesn't have the wisdom to do it all. The old man's got the wisdom to do it all, but he doesn't have the strength to do it all. So now you understand how that thing works. Now here's where you begin to see in the ministry and your family also. But here's where you begin to see all of the years of preaching the truth and working and building people where it begins to pay off. Now those younger Christians, now the sons and daughters in your family, you younger Christians uh, in this church, you're in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s. You're in the peak of your summertime. Now you you pick up the load, and now you begin to carry uh, what uh, other people used to carry. They can't carry anymore. And they become invaluable, and the whole concept becomes a team concept. From a ministry standpoint, it's very clear. When you look at it, take Moses. He had his Joshua, Joshua had his Caleb. David had his Jonathan and his mighty men of valor. And Paul had Titus, Philemon, and Timothy. And I got many of you. See, you can't go on forever. You can't, you can't natural process of going through the cycle of the history of springtime and summer when you get into the fall. You have to be smarter than the problem and understand that you have to reproduce yourself. And it's not just winning people to Christ. That takes no effort. And in this watered-down spiritual world that we live in, everybody thinks that's the mark of real true spirituality. No, it's not. Bible says in John chapter 15, verse 16, that you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. But here's the kicker, and that your fruit should remain. There's the work. There's no work in winning somebody to Christ. The real work starts after they get saved. Amen. The hours you've got to spend with them, the time you've got to invest with them, the problems you've got to go through with them. Oh, these preachers that get up and say, all right, raise your hand during the invitation. You're saved now. You're great. I made a decision in life. Go figure it out for yourself. you got to be taken out and shot. Amen. <laughs> Amen. If that person truly got saved, that's when they need you the most. That's when they need to have a shoulder to cry on, somebody to tell their problems to, their struggles to. Just getting saved is not going to fix all your problems. God never intended it to. But it does give you the wherewithal to get your problems fixed, but it has to be fixed through the Word of God and the local New Testament church and people who are committed to reproducing yourself, taking somebody and putting in them what God's put in you. And that's, that's, that's the key. Building leaders, men and women who who share all the burden of this church. Uh, I'll give you a great example of this. A great example of this is, is our own athletic ministry, whether it be softball or volleyball. Uh, it's one of the most incredible ministries that uh, we have here in, in reaching people. There isn't a season, a year goes by, that we don't get a, a whole bunch of people saved and get into the church and grow. And, and uh, you know, uh, years ago, I mean, I started the athletic ministry and that concept when I came from Canton in 1976. I've done it from 1976 on. I did it for 30 years all by myself. And I just, you know, it was a concept that I understood. I built in it, but I was dumb, I was smart enough, dumb enough, I was smart enough to, to realize that someday I couldn't do it anymore. And today, I can't put the energy in it like I used to, but I don't have to. You know, I can't, I have a hard time even running the bases anymore with my back. I pitch, and it'll be someday I won't be able to do that. But you see, I'll have to sit on the sidelines, you know, and and watch everybody else play, and and, you know, and that, I I don't like that, but I'll I'll be okay with that, you know, because I'll take comfort in the fact that Danny and the guys that are out there that have grown up in this ministry who understand it and the leaders who get the concept, they can make it keep on going. There's 125 guys and gals out there who understands the value of it, who understands what to do that has been reproduced in you. Now, you don't need me anymore. I'm going to go out and start a shuffleboard ministry. (laughs) Give me some of them gym shoes with the Velcro straps that go over the side, man, where I'm going. You'll see me being a Walmart greeter out there, you know, (laughs) checking your receipt as you go out. I know a lot of those guys just kind of say, I won't. I'll have your hands on the wall frisking you down making make sure you didn't steal something out of Walmart. From day one in this church, 11 years ago, that has been the single underlying goal in everything I've done. I've never ever said it very much. No need to say it. As long as I understand it. No matter what I've done, how I've done it, or why I've done it, the way I've done it, and the things that I do that sometimes the people don't understand, I see things from another angle, and I know what I'm doing. And the bottom line is my whole goal has been underlined to build young men and young ladies, couples, to lead and take over this work someday. And, hey, I'll stay with it as long as I can. I'll, God, God gives me strength. I mean, I'll go with it. I can stand up and preach. Y'all scream and get it out as long as my mind gets. I don't get... Uh, you know, Alzheimer's and wind up in a Southern Baptist church someplace, go to the wrong place. That might be good for them, though, so you never know. <clears throat> but I realize in all things go on. you got to replace yourself. In your family, you have to replace yourself. I'm talking to you young couples now. Don't make the mistake that so many parents have made that their kids don't want nothing to do with church, don't want nothing to do with ministry with their parents. Don't make that tragic mistake. You realize that you have a church here. (coughs) You have men and women here (coughs) who want to help you. (coughs) You have a pastor who understands where you're at. Our whole goal is for you to reproduce yourself and your family, but my goal is to reproduce myself and this church. Nothing will burn a man out faster and give him a heart attack quicker than a life of investing all you are and all you have with people. But that's what you need to do because it doesn't matter. Summer only lasts for a short time and you got to get it done. And you have to gather in summer because there's winter coming when nobody's going to gather. Now, lastly, the winter season. Final chapter of our lives. The end of the mission. The final mile of the way, as the song says. And we get to that point, and we're all going to get there. You guys, young kids, hear me now. I know you're young and have your whole life ahead of you. But it will go by so quickly. James 4.14 says, What is your life but a vapor that appears for a little while and fadeth away? And When you get to this point and look back in your life, my advice to you is to look for just one thing. Judge your success or your failure in life as a child of God by just one thing because that's how God does it. Forget the cars you've had. Forget all the fun times, the vacations, the trophy deer, the fish, and all the things, of uh, all the success and prestige and all the money you made. And those things in context, there's nothing wrong with them. Don't misunderstand me. But you better stop and count the men and women that you have reproduced yourself with. Start with your own family. Then all the others that God has brought across your path. Men and women that saw your heart and your burden and wanted what you have. People in this church and its ministry you invested your life in that now are taking the place and in ministry and doing the job. Proverbs seventeen six says, children's children are the crown of old men and the glory of children are their fathers. That's a great verse. That children's children there, that's your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And the Bible says, children's children are the crown of old men. <clears throat> But in a practical, spiritual sense, it's also the people that God puts in your life, the Timothys, the Philemon, the Tituses, the young men and the young ladies that so many of you labor with. And I know it gets to be a burden sometimes. I know people can drive you up the wall. I know you start with people and they go for a while and then they bail out and you put your life in it. I watch those things. I see those things. I see your tears. I see your pain. I see your agony. It's good for you. Yeah, That's true. I don't want God to take it away. Those are the kind of things you go through. Those are the reality of the ministry. And I've learned, you know, I've learned I'll go through three or four absolute total idiots that you didn't invest your life with and do everything with and they do nothing with it and they do absolutely nothing and they're a waste of time. Then God will give you that one person and it'll make all the other ones worth it. You got to do that. That's part of the process. Hey, Nobody madder than me wishes that God would just put a big shaker up the top of those steps and wake up all the worthless people and send them over to First Baptist in Raytown. Nobody. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. This is the shaker and the filtering process. But fortunately, I didn't say unfortunately, fortunately, you've got to get in a book, find out what they really want. Now, you look at it as a bad thing. Don't you realize how much valuable experience you gain in dealing with loser people? I want everybody to do what's right. Nobody does more than me. Well, the finance committee already told me if I get 500 people here, they're going to buy me one of them microphones that comes around to your mouth here, man. (laughs) I want one of them suckers. Folds over your ear, nobody sees it, comes around, a little clear thing there, a little mic right there. Oh, bourgeois. I'd like everybody to make it, but they're not going to. But don't discount that you learn from everything in life, don't you? Do you just learn from the good things in life? Well, if we just learn from the good things in life, the happy things, the merry things, the things that work out, we wouldn't be worth anything. You know why God gave you tear ducts in your eyes? So he could squeeze your heart sometime and bring that thing and make it, keep it tender. That's why he does. Now, I'm telling you, children children are the crown of old men. And the glory of children are their fathers. In a spiritual sense, the generations that you and I ensured in your family and in this church after we're long gone would keep on going. I told you from day one in this church that there's only two things worth investing your life in. One of them is the word of God and the other one's the souls of men because those are the only two things that are going to last for all of eternity. I going to tell you something. I've seen it happen. You don't do what I'm telling you to do. You just blow it off I've seen families that were Christian families where the mom and dad didn't do what's right and they lost their kids. Mom and dad were completely out of control and couldn't do anything about it. It's a terrible, tragic thing. But mom and dad didn't do what they needed to do. Those kids got bad, that terrible. Mom and dad have a delusion that it'll all work itself out someday. You're out of your mind. Devil ain't gonna let that happen. You know what I've seen? Three or four generations later, those kids are all, everybody's an agnostic. They don't even know who God was. Devil will see to it. He'll see to it. He'll see to it. He'll see to it. Look at Psalm chapter 90. <clears throat> now, kids, I know you think you got all the head of life ahead of you. I know you do. You're 20, 30, 40. Man, Medicare and Medicaid is a far thing from your mind right now. <laughs> You don't, watch the, you don't watch the world news or you don't care what's going on because you're worried about what's in your own little world. I get it. We all were there. We all were there. But look at Psalms 90. Pick it up in verse 9. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore... Yet as their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, we fly away. Verse 12 says, For teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. It says to teach us to number our days. The cycle of life goes through four seasons, but it goes so quickly. He says, number your days. You see, you think you have the rest of your life. The Bible says, number your days. Put a pencil to it. Years ago, I did that very thing. I got looking at this thing and that verse has always been a favorite of mine. Bible says three score and 10. That's 70 years. In the Bible, that's the average life of man. So we'll work with that. And that looks like a long time. If somebody told you when you were 10 years old that you were going to die when you were 70, you'd say, well, that's great with me, boy. I got a whole time ahead of me. A lot of Christians look at it that way when it comes to serving God. But I want to show you something. I I want you to, Count your days here. I want you to number your days and then apply your hearts unto wisdom. Let's say that we all live 70. Let's say that, I know it's true of my life, and it's probably true in a general average. Let's say you get saved when you're 20. Now you have 50 years left to serve God. Sounds like a lot. You realize when you put a pencil to it, you, you sleep 15 years of your life Now you got 35 years left. Realize in a cycle of life of 70 years, you'll eat six years of that. Now you're down to 29 years left. When you count your vacations, your time out of fellowship, our ball games, soccer matches, volleyball, baseball, and all the other things we do, at the end of that tally, we probably only have 10 to 15, maybe 20 at the stretch out of 70 years to work for God. That's all we got. Sounds like we have a lot to you. Count your days. Sounds like you have a lot to you, number them. Now, you see, that's understanding. That's seeing it from God's standpoint. That's realizing that God has a purpose for you and for me, And we think we have our whole life, but you don't. End of the day, in a general sense, we got 15, maybe 20 years to give God our best shot. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Boy, if there's anything out of this thing of these four seasons, it needs to be that concept. And I give you on top of that, the Bible says, boast not thyself with tomorrow, though knowest not what a day may bring forth. But I'm talking about if you live a life of 70. time you get saved, but the time you figure in all the distractions and the things that are natural things, we don't have a lot of time left. Oh, if I could get God's people to see and understand that, there'd be a revival across Christianity for people who are really, truly saved. You'd get your mind off yourself and what you want to do and you'd realize that this life, it really doesn't matter what you want to do because your life is going to start in the next one. Come on. Amen. And right now, you need to be about your father's business. Amen. Then the last thing he says here, and I'll close with this, he that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causes shame. We want to look at the phrase there, causes shame. Not only to his father down here, God, but also causes shame to himself up there. For that shame is very clearly defined in the Word of God as the shame of the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes, what I have said, that thou mayest see. The shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Cross-reference that with First Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 19, and Second Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 11. Revelation sixteen fifteen says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy two fifteen, 15, Show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not be ashamed. You see, we need to be about God's business. We need to understand that God saved us for a reason and saved us for a purpose. Underlining fundamental is that is you need to reproduce yourself in somebody else. This is why I push you to disciple somebody, to get involved in a people ministry, go down to a turnaround or whatever, anything that'll track your attention and get your focus off of yourself and on somebody else. Right. See, some of you think you've got problems. I know you do. And I'm not saying that some of you don't have some legitimate problems. But most of us don't. You know what's good about going down to turn around, going around and Restart going out on the street with these guys, you get to see some people who really got some problems. You ain't got any problems. Your worst day, you still got a nice home, you got a nice room, you got food, you got this, you got people that love you. They got nothing. Who was telling me the story about going to Osawatomi to the state hospital to do your deal? It was Georgie. It was Georgie. Osawatomie State Hospital's been down in Osawatomie for since the Civil War. And before it became a state hospital, it's also a medium security prison there. It was a where they took all the insane people, and uh, they didn't know what to do with the insane people back then. It was a terrible place, and it was a it was a place where they. Chained them up, they have tunnels down there and dungeons where they put them down there it 's a terrible place. I worked down around there for a number of years, and there was always an eerie thing going on there. It was a, be a great place for a bunch of high school kids to be massacred. I thought you know, in a horror movie, <laughs> it doesn 't take much for teenage kids because they make the dumbest mistakes anyhow. you know you know where are we going to run to oh i don 't know let 's run to the graveyard you know that good that 's a safe place to go anyway. <laughs> I was driving down there and I was working one time uh, locating some stuff and I come around this little deal off this old bridge and walked into this thing. I didn't know what it was. I was looking for the power transformer to tell you the truth. Walked into this little plot field there about the size of this room. Maybe a little smaller. And there in the ground was, I counted them, 450 little plaques, little round circles in the ground with just a number on it. Those were the people that died there that They just buried him in that little plot. No name, no relatives, no next of kin, no date when they died. All it was was a body in the ground with a little round plot with a number from 100 to 300 or 400 or something. I sat there, tears run down my face, and that was the saddest place on planet Earth for me. At that moment in time, that was the saddest place to die and have nobody on this planet care about you, think about you, and apron in that grave, probably that ground for 100, 150 years, and there's nobody on this planet who even remembers who they are. My point is this, folks. Don't ever get to the point in your life where you don't leave a legacy of what God has done for you. Make sure that when you pass off this life, somebody not only knows who you are, but knows what God did in your life, and then through what he did in your life, did something in their life. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for these good people today and thank you for all that you do with them. And I thank you for their kindness, their goodness, and for how they do take people. This church wouldn't be where it's at with the strong core base we have. Certainly isn't because of me. It's because of men and women in this church who have seen my vision and seen my burden and fell in love with the book that I fell in love with, and that linked arms with me to do greater things than I could have ever have done. And Father, I, I love them for that, and I thank you for giving them to me. And Lord, I know that we'll never build a church of thousands, and I don't want to. I want to build a church of soldiers, men and women who, when we leave, we leave our legacy, that they'll know who we were and what we believed. And help us today, Father, to number our days, to count our days, and apply our hearts unto wisdom. Help us to realize that in life we only have those four seasons. We need to work in the summertime of our lives because there's coming a winter when no man works. Help us. Help us to grasp that, to understand that, and then to give our lives and our families and everything we have to the Lord. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for our sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you